essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards, talk to the people who live here, and work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here, all so that we can travel back outside a place and see it from a different perspective again. That's what you're doing today. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade. And we're here unpacking what we've seen and experienced over the last few weeks. Traveling to coal reclamation sites, a historic black cemetery, and regain tribal grounds, talking land ownership. Finding connections and analyzing our changing perspectives on the great wide world around us. Today, we unpack. Not just our suitcases, but our investigation in where we've been. And where we go from here. Remember when I first started talking to you about this, I sent you all those videos um, by Caitlin Doty. Her thesis was on how we handle dead bodies in crowded urban areas. Since yeah. Oh, yeah. Areas. I remember the videos. <laughs> Which ones did I send you again? You sent me the one where she gets embalmed. Um, one about the composting sites in Washington. And I think one about cremation as well. She gets fake embalmed, right? She doesn't actually die. Yeah. <laughs> no, her body is really embalmed in the video. No. Yes, fake embalmed. I mean, it's really an interesting video, too, because, like, the mortician who's working with her, like, does the massage and is, like, rubbing lotion all over her. So, in a way, it kind of seems like a spa treatment, but... She explains, she's like, this is how I work out rigor mortis and I have to keep the body moisturized. And this is where I would poke in all of the highly toxic chemicals to keep <laughs> you embalmed. Right. Yeah, that was, I think I texted you after I watched it and I was like, I'm actually like a little bit nauseous watching this. I wouldn't call myself a person who's like afraid of death, but I don't know, watching all like the instruments just like and where she would stick things inside the body or, you know, talking about like sewing the mouth shut. Yeah, that was hard for me to watch. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, I was fine with it because I've known that stuff for so long, how they sew the eyelids shut and the mouth and sometimes even sew the hands down to the chest so that when rigor mortis sets back in, your arms don't flail out like during... <laughs> the, oh my gosh. Uh, viewing and scare everyone else in the crowd. So, yeah, it's a lot that they do to make a body look alive again or the close, close to being as alive as possible. Which is so funny. Like, I don't know. It's like they're just making it in a way that's comfortable for all the people who are still alive. Eyes closed, mouth closed. You know, it's like you don't want to see somebody dead with their mouth hanging open like something about that is like so undignified but that's such a like I don't know just live human thing that we would like worry about something like that even after somebody's passed away <laughs> yeah I mean we worry about it so much that it's in the law like I looked up what you can do with a dead body in certain states uh, which is probably going to get me like picked up on some sort of watch list for what people <laughs> are googling but that's okay um i'll take it amazon is like we have a recommendation for you <laughs> yeah okay so in california every person who deposits or disposes of any human remains in any place except in a cemetery is guilty of a misdemeanor whoa makes sense you mean you're if you can't throw a body out in the backyard but you know, if grandpa wants to be buried in the backyard, he can't be buried in the backyard. Hmm. Um, in New York, every body of a deceased person within this state shall be decently, I like that that word's in the law, shall be decently buried or incinerated within a reasonable time of death. Hmm. Okay. And Washington State, Washington State is interesting because they had that same law, right? Human remains lying within the state shall be decently buried or cremated within a reasonable time of death. But Washington State is where um, Katrina Spade started Recompose, which is the human composting site. 
Conventional burials, and even cremation, carry pretty high environmental costs. Green burial, where the body is put directly into the soil in a simple shroud, was the ideal solution, and has the added bonus of being what many cultures have done with their dead for tens of thousands of years. But land is at a premium in highly populated areas. When was the last time you saw a Target, or a Walmart, or a skyscraper torn down to reclaim the land as a green burial cemetery? A girl can only dream. This was when Katrina learned that farmers had been composting livestock for decades. That's right, composting. Like that sweet soil-generating pile in your backyard, but breaking down a dead human body. A revolution was born. By 2015, the first donor bodies were being composted in prototype studies at the Department of Forensic Anthropology at Western Carolina University. Today, 10 years and many prototypes and legalization attempts later, here we are, visiting the facility just south of Seattle, Washington. Katrina, kitty cat. <laughs> you did it! Ta-da! And now human composting is legal in Washington, Colorado, and Oregon. I just remember in that video that I watched about the um, human composting, they were talking about trying to get it uh, legal in like another state nearby. I think it was California. It was anyway, something like that. They were just trying to get it legal in, a, in another state. And it was like on the back burner, like the government was just saving it for later because I guess people are just still a little bit uncomfortable with that idea. Which is kind of funny because I've heard it in a couple different ways lately, and so it stood out to me. Have you ever heard of the show Ted Lasso? Mm-hmm. So there's that episode in season two where there is a funeral. Spoiler alert. I'm not telling you who. It's for. But anyways, so Keely and her boyfriend, Roy, are just talking about um, different death methods. And so she's talking about how she would like to basically be composted and so that people can eat from the fruit of the tree that grows <laughs> from her from her remains and she just thinks it's like very beautiful and like her boyfriend makes fun of her and such but I think it's an idea that's kind of catching on a little more mainstream to people just about that that idea that like our body can be circular I also saw it at a um, museum in Washington DC it was at the arts and industries building an exhibit called Futures, and it had all these different ideas about what the future could look like and, you know, transportation and fashion, like all these different things. And one of them, it showed like a bag with a tree growing out of it, like where somebody's body would be put if they were to be composted. And I could hear people being like, oh, that's actually really nice. And, you know, people were like very open to it. So I, th I thought that was interesting. It's becoming more talked about. And I think that's um, a good thing. Yeah, it's kind of, and it's funny too, and ironic that it's a thing of the future when it has always been true. I mean, we've always, if you just put a body in the ground, it turns into compost. Like it's just organic matter that enriches the soil. So yes, these composting places exist and you can, a body can go there and go through a ritual and be covered you know, with a shroud and, and with um, pine needles and juniper, and they can be pushed into the spacey looking pod. And then you know exactly, oh, that's my relative's dirt. But you could have also just planted a person in your yard and put some chestnut seeds in them and then whammo bammo, they're a tree without spending $7,000 to make them a tree. Yeah. <laughs> like we don't, have to get the pod but like the pod makes it legal so <laughs> but technically yeah your body can just break down by itself yeah it's a very natural process they don't put chemicals on you or anything and the juniper is just to help the smell so it's just doing what it naturally does it's like when i was asking my um friends and family about how they would like their body to be disposed of after they die two people said that they wanted sky burials which I had read about in Caitlin Doty's book but I didn't really know a lot of people knew about um, and this is one I think a lot of Americans would struggle to conceptualize and accept but basically it goes back to a Tibetan Buddhist tradition or as far back as a Parsi community tradition out of Persia it was kind of like a 
a burial rite of the Zoroastrianism, which is like a 3,000 year old religion. And in the Tibetan ritual, a body is just left out for vultures to eat. Hmm. It's considered giving something back to the universe. So it's a, it's a circular idea. It's just not as beautiful as a tree, but it's you're still giving back to the natural world and that's what would happen to an animal if it died, vultures and other carrions would eat it. And then in the Parsi community, they would build a tower of silence, which is this like cylinder looking column structure that they would carry the body to the top of and then the the carrion birds and the vultures would eat the body up there. Wow. And it was just considered for 3000 years. It was it's that's normal for 3000 years, but I think a lot of laws and uh, American sentiments would would struggle to accept that. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. Do you feel like it goes back to that kind of like it's not like dignified to like have a body eaten by bird? We have this respect for the dead, I don't know. But I, I don't know, it's a weird concept. Is it dignified to poke a bunch of holes into a body's organs and fill it with toxic fluid? Like that doesn't sound dignified either. I mean, I think it goes back to the seen and the unseen. I think humans fear death so much that they do everything in their power to keep it unseen. So morgues are in the basement. They uh, make the bodies look alive. They put them inside of a casket that they put inside of a cement vault that they put underground and they don't want to see it. Where in some cultures, they live with corpses. They live with skeletons. They keep them in the house for years. Ooh. So what's healthy, what's not healthy, what's dignified, what's not? I think it depends on the culture. It depends on how you were raised. It depends on how you see the world. And I don't know if there's a right or wrong. Yeah. That's so true. So the where where do they live with their corpses? Where is that in the world? So that's in this really small mountain village in Indonesia called Toraja community. When someone dies, they continue to dress the corpse and um, you know take it to parties, take it to the dinner table. There's this one story in Caitlin Doty's book about this little boy who shares a bedroom with his deceased grandfather, and he has for years. So when he wakes up. Um, he not only gets himself dressed, but he, you know, gets his grandfather's corpse ready for the day. And it's a way of honoring their dead and also keeping that memory alive. Wow. It's like hard for me to picture, but at the same time, like after learning these different death practices, I'm like not, I feel like I'm not as shocked as I would have been maybe a couple months ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> to me, it's like, it's just another another thing humans do in some other part of the world um and it's beautiful in its own way just like all these other things are as well maybe we're not supposed to be shocked a a dead person is a dead person and yeah (laughs) we should respect that but at the same time like everyone deserves the right to have their own custom yeah definitely and like we talked about in the episode like their own death plan their own ideas of what they want, and that should be respected too. I think that ties into what we studied when it comes to Native American tribes, like this respect not only for a human's life, but also a respect for other customs and traditions and the cultures that stand behind them. And and we went into it, we were just going to go talk about land, but it became so much more because that story is multi-layered in how we need to revitalize our respect and honor and memory when it comes to the Native American story. I keep thinking back to those two visitors we ran into there and how they weren't Native American, but they loved Native American culture and they had this zeal for it, um, finding out more about all the different tribes in their area and even trying to find out how they might be connected to some sort of tribe in their ancestry. I knew that he would love this place because he makes arrowheads. We've always walked the beach and collected arrowheads and sea glass and everything. So I knew he would love it. Did you did you know about all these tribes and like Yeah. 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 Yeah
that my grandmother was Cherokee, and then on one side of the family, and the other side of the family was an Anishinaabe. Mm-hmm. So I grew up thinking that I had some some Indian going on, you know what I no. mean? Well, he may, but I had just recently, a couple years ago, did the 23andMe, yeah. not a freaking drop. But we've always been interested. Like, my my great-great-great-great-grandfather was Jess Cattell. He was a revolutionary okay. warrior. Yeah. We were always told that he married a Lenai Anape, Princess Indian, oh. is what the stories were passed down through yeah. generations, you know what I mean? I've been thinking about them too. And it like reminded, I think both of us of like a couple different instances of just kind of white people. Like, I don't know. That's kind of the way that they talked about it there. Like, do you remember that woman just talking about Native Americans connection to land? And she like in her voice, she just like admired that and like envied it in a way. What do you think draws you to it? Because I've always been drawn to it too. The nature of it. Yeah. The nature of it. Because they were... It's such simple that they were one with nature, you know? Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like, everything they did had to do with nature. And the Europeans or whoever it was tried to strip that from them because that's power. That's yeah. you're, you're in touch with yeah. your, your, your being. They knew what source was. You know, right. they knew what, because, I mean, they sat on the ground for a reason. You know what I mean? That's healing. That's, mm-hmm. you know, eating the plants that grow around you, give, taking what Mother Earth has given them. They use it. Like, look at the pine needle yeah. art. You know, That's come right. on. Like, yeah. people don't do that no more. So they've lost touch. You know, everybody, young people especially, are running around thinking they're trying to find a place in the world when they're looking in the wrong spot. They're looking in their phone, and they're not going to find that in their phone. you got to get out, you know, bare feet. You know what yeah. your mom always taught you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. you, you got to yeah. get out on your bare feet and touch the earth and walk the beach. And, you yeah. Know. Right, yeah. But I think, I, it's like all, it's, I think we're all connected, you know, to it because right. we're yeah. all searching for some kind of connection to each other. And, you know, you know the same. You know, we're all one. Well, they really are all yeah. one, you know. The Indians knew that, you know. This lady here, she she's always known that. Yeah, like searching for the story that we were never really told. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But you feel it. You know it. You, you feel it. Yeah. You know it. That's why you're here. Yeah, I think I think that there is an aspect of wanting the heritage that adds honor and respect and tradition already into your life, rather than having to create it yourself. I mean, I read this really interesting research paper about it was this idea that a lot of white chefs who themselves feel like they have such a mixture of ethnicities within them that they their families have been here for so long that their culture has been watered down or distilled or lost they feel the need to study other cultures and when it comes to cuisine and food so they get really interested in Japanese food or they go to Mexico and study Mexican food and they could even go to Europe and, you know, go to France and study French food. And it feels like a departure from themselves because they're interested in another heritage. But I think it just comes down to the fact that they themselves feel like whatever they're supposed to have is not there. It's been watered down, lost over generations missing because they were once a part of one culture and then they were that that community left and and attempted to create a new culture here but that culture might not be as strong because it's not as old it's not as tested it's not as varied and pure and distilled so they just want the heritage to add the depth and honor that you know happens for other people that they feel like they're missing Yeah, it's like you do want to feel some sort of connection to some land somewhere that you might be from, you know? I remember you asking me, like, why I took an ancestry test one time. And the answer was pretty simple because it was just gifted to me at Christmas. So I thought, why not? But at the same time, I was, like, kind of excited to just be like, where am I from? Because I feel like I'm just, I mean, I think a lot of white people are just English mutts, right? Like, we're just (laughs) from a bunch of different countries, which was definitely the case for me. Um, I'm, like, 26% Swedish and then, like, 15% Irish. Like, anyway, it's just, like, a bunch of random things. But actually, like, knowing that did give me kind of an idea of, of something I could understand more about myself. Like, some 
history that I haven't been aware of before, do some more digging into like Swedish and Irish history or something like that. But I don't know. Even then, it doesn't feel like mine. And again, I don't want to say any of this to be like, oh, pity the white people because like I'm, we're all fine. We're definitely fine. But I think there is just something to be said about kind of like a lot of Americans just like feeling lost here without like really thinking about it because none of us are really from here except for Native Americans. Like that kind of generational feeling like sticks with you. So what I find interesting about all of this is how it kind of culminates with white people saying that they have Native ancestry when they don't. And this is something that's gone on for, like, generations. There's, like, words for it. You're, you're a pretendian or a wannabe if you are claiming this Native heritage. We see this all the time with, like, different celebrities. Uh, let's see, Elizabeth Warren, for instance. Uh, Johnny Depp, Miley Cyrus, Johnny Cash. I think it's just, like, this weird rumor almost that just got passed down from, like, white family to white family that, like, Ooh, somewhere in the past, there might be some Native blood, but for the most part, people, like, can't prove it. And even if they do send in DNA to, like, 23andMe or Ancestry, even if there is, like, the smallest percentage, they can't prove what specific tribe it would have been from. So it just gets really, like, messy and ends up being kind of a weird form of erasure where white people kind of use this connection to native tribes um, that's not really there. It might be like 9% of them or something like that, if it's real. And they'll use that to say, you know, I'm this percentage of this native tribe, and so I have a say in it, when that's just not how it works. Yeah, I think Rose said that. I mean, even she kind of mentioned that she has reverence for those Native Americans who still reside on the federal land where she doesn't reside. And so I think it comes down to that. It comes down to reverence and not just the greed of wanting to put a label on yourself and claim whatever history and culture that that label inscribes. Because even if you did look into your Irish culture, your Swedish culture. I mean, do you feel like you have a tie to that? Like, do you have any stories that tie back to Sweden or to family dishes or anything like that where you feel like that culture is actually a part of your life? Or would you just be adopting some of those elements? Yeah, exactly. I think that's the other part to it, right? Is that I don't know that I can claim it for myself. Like, even if it is my blood I don't like I said I don't I barely know anything about these countries except for their like places I'd like to visit someday you know <laughs> I don't know the traditions and the culture that they have there and so me coming in and just like saying it's mine now I don't think makes any sense again I think there's ways to like appreciate that culture right I can make Irish food sometimes and like <laughs> you know say this might be what my ancestors ate <laughs> but um yeah, I don't know as a whole that I could claim it. I mean, I think investigating Irish food culture is a beautiful thing, and you can do that without claiming it. Like, you can, I think visiting these places is kind of what was drawing us to the tribal land in Delaware. It wasn't that we were just talking to a people who have claimed a culture, we were talking to people who have maintained a culture on ancestral land who have maintained historic relics who have maintained a, a cultural way of dress they have allowed these things to survive and live and i think that's what draws people to native american cultures because they have lived inside of a community and culture that has survived despite everything trying to kill it um and I think that there is beauty in acknowledging that and reading about it and respecting it and going to these places and learning more about it. And you don't have to claim it to, to experience it and recognize it and enjoy it. You can do that by going to Sweden. You can do that by, you know, eating some bangers and mash and, and feeling, you know, a little bit more connected to another culture. I think that that's absolutely fine. We live in a global community now. Right? We have 
so much from different cultures online that we can learn. We can travel much more easily than ever before. So we can take advantage of that and and grow through every culture we experience rather than just trying to claim the labels that our blood tells us is ours. reading a book called Carefree Black Girls by Ziba Blay. And she was talking about all the things that she kind of learned about Black people in history. And one of them was just about how all these different people are left out of the story. Like we've heard about Rosa Parks, but we haven't heard about all the women who came before her who were doing very similar things that kind of set the stage for her. She's just the one that we learn about in school because she was like, quote unquote successful in her mission whereas the others kind of got in trouble or locked away or whatever and so you know she was just talking about that how we like like tj was saying about like the big four people like martin luther king jr so on and so forth that's kind of what you hear about and it's like yay those people did it and everything's fine now but really it's like on the backs of like so many other people who were paving the road before them and they all work together in this collective. But again, like just not hearing about them is um, a lack of our education. These are stories that we need to hear just as much as like all the different white men who fought wars, <laughs> which is a large part of what my history of teaching was. Yeah, and I think, I wish I could have put more of like TJ's clips in the episode, but for time's sake, I, I only got to include a couple things that he said. Cause I mean, I talked with him for, I think a whole, his whole planning block. And it was so easy because believe it or not, he'd only been, he's only been teaching for two years, but the way in which he understands his philosophy and his ideals as a teacher was inspiring for someone that's so new to the craft. And also how he understands his place as an educator within the grand scheme of not only these kids' education and their knowledge of history, but in the social and political fabric of our country, of our state. And we talked about, you know, how so many decisions and so many complaints come before school boards. And he himself had been brought in front of the school board. He has a, a large Kurdish immigrant population in his area. And so for one of his modern units, he decided to focus on the Kurdish revolution and apparently some parents brought that whole aspect of his class in front of the school board with complaints that you know he was indoctrinating their children with these communistic or other regions viewpoints and he was going outside of the normal curriculum and he said he was scared like he was shaking so bad he couldn't even talk like he was amazed to be a to be brought in when he was just trying to reach a group of students that might not have felt represented in this new world that they had stepped into. Mm. It reminds me of what you said when we were talking earlier about how kids are not lemmings. Like the, all this scare that parents have about what their children are taking in and, and just not trusting their children to think for themselves and you know weigh what they're hearing against what they believe about the world already. Maybe it changes their beliefs. Maybe it doesn't. For the most part, I think it doesn't. It just allows them to think about other things. It's just wild to me that there's so much pushback on just hearing other stories that are maybe unfamiliar to, to these people. To me, it's just, I don't know why that's scary to hear something new. It pushes people to the point of anger. Like, uh, last year in Virginia, in Loudoun County, people were arrested for disrupting the peace at a school board meeting because they got in such a heated argument over transgender issues and critical race theory. And I get it. These are important people in your life. Children are important. And we have to do our best to make sure that the errors and the sins of the past education system don't get regurgitated or made worse in the modern education system. But also, how can you do that if you're screaming at each other? How can you do that when you're spreading rumors 
like this litter box story. Have you heard of this? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you heard. It was a few months back. There was like Nevada, a bunch of school board meetings were freaking out, saying that we were, we, I'm not even a teacher in Nevada, that schools were providing litter boxes for kids and that the schools were convincing the kids to become cats. <laughs> Um, and it was like all these parents were like going to the school board meetings be like, my kid's not a cat. You need to get rid of these litter boxes. And the superintendent was like, there are no litter boxes. Like you can, and he was like, I'll give you a personal tour. You can go see any bathroom you want. Oh my gosh. I'm going to put that in the podcast. I'm going to look that up. I, th- I want to say it was Nevada, I wa- okay. but I might have Nevada on my mind. I'm sure if you put school board litter box in the you, you will find it. You will find it. Uh, it got so much that I think a junior congressperson was talking about it. <laughs> it's this unfabricated theory, this rumor that was out there. Um, I read about it in The Guardian because a Nebraska state lawmaker named Bruce Bostelman in a televised debate brought it up. So that means that he knew he was talking to a wide audience. He knew he was bringing up an important issue. And he brought up this rumor that has been persistent, especially throughout the Midwest, that kind of started uh, near Detroit, Michigan, about how (laughs) children were coming to school and self-identifying as cats. So the schools were putting litter boxes in the bathroom in order to meet their individualized needs. He just said this on air. I'm here. I'll read a quote. He said he was expressing his concern and he said they meow and they bark and they interact with their teachers in this fashion. And now our schools are wanting to put litter boxes in the schools for these children to use. How is this sanitary? It's just that slippery slope that so many people are just falling down. Like if we do this, then the most terrible thing will happen when none of that really is happening. It's just this fear mongering that just makes people afraid. (laughs) The definition of fear mongering. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was brought up in a school board meeting in Michigan. So like these parents believed it enough to bring it to the authorities in their district and, you know, ask for it to be taken care of. And I think that to me is what I fear is that, that extreme distrust of the education system. And I fear how that is a worthy distrust because of some school districts um, and some school practices and some things that teachers might have done in the past, but also how that distrust then harms other teachers and students and the whole of the American education system. I think maybe this podcast is something that could help in in a weird way. Bear with me here. But just thinking about kind of our ethos of getting somewhere new, like helps you think about your home differently. The only way though to like be able to think about something differently is to travel, maybe physically, maybe mentally, traveling through books, through different stories. But that's the only way you're gonna see things differently, right? And if that's important to you to have this open mind, then you've got to travel in some capacity. And hopefully, I don't know, school districts and people, parents, can like find some middle ground on that subject just to understand stories don't have to mean truth and we can still think for ourselves but we have to see things and read things to know to give ourselves a chance to think yeah i mean it goes back to the lies my teacher told me if you really want to understand history you have to put in some work you have to read beyond just the one textbook you read in high school you have to you have to dig deeper Okay, so what we're going to do now, since we brought up lies my history teacher told me, is we're going to do a segment called Truth or Myth with Melissa and Abby. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. 
Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a statement and Abby's going to tell me based on her knowledge of American history, whether it's myth or truth. This is really going to show my true colors. You ready? (laughs) Remember, I was raised in Utah. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start with an easy one. Christopher Columbus discovered America. Myth. Correct. Um, As a primary school, most of us learn that uh, Christopher Columbus discovered America, but that is not accurate. In fact, the Spanish explorer never even entered North America. He explored the Caribbean islands and the Bahamas. It's like Morningstar said. There's a quote from her. I think it's in that podcast. She says he didn't discover America. So listen to Morningstar, everyone. It was another white guy, though. Do you know who wins the accolade of discovering America? Uh, it wasn't that Cook guy, was it? Nope. It was Leif Erikson, the Norse explorer. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. Good old Leif. Yeah, good old Leif. Number two, Christopher Columbus, another one about him, sailed on the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. I think that's true. Nope. <laughs> I was like, I'm scared. Wait, was that the like original Pilgrims? No, that was nobody. They're just historians think that Christopher Columbus did not name his ships. Like that, probably not true whatsoever. Oh my gosh! Oh, so but that is the ships that would have been attributed to him in history class. It's just not real. Wow. Okay, good to know. Number three, Pocahontas and John Smith fell in love. Oh, myth. Hundred percent myth. Yeah, total myth. He kidnapped her and then she died from a new disease. She was also 11. She was 11 when she met John Smith. And he was a grown man. It is not a cute Disney story. Disney, do your work. (laughs) He did write that Pocahontas saved his life when his family, when her family tried to execute him. So if you read his journals, they did have a connection that is almost like Disney-esque, but not romantic. Mm, Yeah. Disney, let's not be creepy. That's called pedophilia. So, Okay, um, let's do one more from the colonial era. So, uh, number four. The first Thanksgiving was a peaceful and joyous meal shared between the pilgrims and the Native Americans. I believe that's a myth. Like, we had all these stories about, like... I mean, I think I was even told, like, it was a feast of, like, corn and meat and all this stuff but i i think even that is not true yeah it's a myth the two groups had a lot of hostile feelings towards one another um the pilgrims viewed the native americans as savages right away it wasn't like ooh, look a new culture they were just like ah wow and they wanted their land immediately it was not like let's try to live harmoniously and then things went awry No, it's that they brought in smallpox that killed off 90% of the native population and then the pilgrims stole their land. So there might have been some celebratory meals and some trading of food products, but for the most part, Thanksgiving did not happen in the way that we believe it did. Yeah, that checks out. Okay, we're moving forward in time. Number five, George Washington had wooden teeth. Also a myth. Also a myth. Yeah. The truth is, he wore dentures made of ivory, gold, and lead. Oh, well. Not good. (laughs) That probably contributed to his death. (laughs) But apparently, like, the ivory, like, wore down. Like, if you've ever seen, like, old ivory, and it kind of has those orangey lines in it, so it kind of looked like wood. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776. Mm, I think that's a myth. Yeah, it was signed in August. Oh my gosh. Well, I guess that means we need a they new... They just finished it on July oh, 4th. Oh, gotcha. That means <laughs> yeah. we need a new holiday, so... Yeah. August has needed a new holiday anyway. Yeah. That's true. Go back to school and set off fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna end with this one because this is the one that really kind of, like, grinds my gears because... This is about a historical figure that I think should not be considered a genius, and this probably gives away the answer. But the statement is, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. 
Oh yeah! Yes, I was actually just talking about this with some people. So that's a myth. It's kind of the same as what I was saying with like uh, Rosa Parks earlier, right? Is that it's like built on the science and the work of a bunch of different scientists before him. Yeah. He borrowed, or some historians say stole, ooh, some uh, necessary details um, from some other scientists. He was just really good and really lucky in getting patents for the things that he invented. Mm. So when you have a patent, you have sole ownership of the product. So it might seem like your invention, it just means that you get to sell it and say it was yours. Yeah. It's not like he was just sitting around and a uh, light bulb turned on over his head with the idea. Wink, wink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dumb joke. Dumb joke. Okay, so I lied. Let's do one more because oh. it has to do with kind of what we okay. talked about in our other episode. Um, okay, so statement. Slavery largely happened in the American South. Mm, yeah, myth. Yeah. Massachusetts was the first colony to legalize slavery. And New York had over like... 1600 slaves in the 1700s so yeah there were slaves all over the colonies in america um even after independence Mm -hmm. and george washington and thomas jefferson both owned slaves george washington mr ivory lead teeth yeah he had slaves too people thomas jefferson was so he was he was terrible too he was so creepy it's i i think even rose cherry talked about new york after even after like slavery was abolished like they still did some crazy stuff so yeah it's not great you know what's funny is i feel like i if i were to answer those questions that you just posed to me as if i were still like high school abby i probably would have said truth to a lot more of those but because i've learned so much afterwards i knew that they were all myths you know what i mean yeah, and I think too, like sometimes people get really angry if you like disabuse them. You you think of disabusing someone as what that word sounds like, like you're taking away the abuse of the lie. But no, people get mad. They're like, "No, we didn't have slaves. We didn't. We didn't do that. No, there was a Thanksgiving. Pilgrims loved the Native Americans. They were best friends." Like, okay, you just have to deal with it. Like, just deal with the past in the way that it was. And that'll make you a more mature, yeah, well-rounded human being rather than trying to hold on to some Disney story where Pocahontas sings about her love for John Smith. Yes. There is like no shame in just understanding that what you were told was wrong. Like that's barely even any responsibility on you, you know? Like that's not something you have to feel like that ashamed about because it was something else. It was a system. It was other people telling you these things. You know, like, it's not really your fault that that's the system that you're raised in. Like, now it's just up to you to understand the real story. This whole idea of ownership, it's like, I want to own my identity and I want to own these labels and I want to own the story and whatever was given to me, I want it to be right because for it to be wrong means that I have to start all over and I have to reevaluate how I see the world. But I wonder if that's just how we grow, that if you still see the world the way you saw it when you were four, we'd be worried about you. Like my, my, my neighbor is three And she thinks because her tongue was red, she's turning into Iron Man. So (laughs) (laughs) if you said that to me as a grown person, I would be concerned. Like, not as a joke either. Just like, I'm a little nervous. This is how superheroes happen. They start turning a certain color and then whammo bammo, you're a superman. (laughs) A superhuman. Well, I am still waiting for my Hogwarts letter, but... It's fine. We don't have to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, I think... No, it's true. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. Why are you so... Why are people so scared of reevaluating their worldview and changing it a little bit? I don't know. I don't know. I think, to me, that's exciting just to learn more and understand more about the world around us. That's the fun part about being alive. 
Learning, understanding, growing. Maybe I sound like a, I don't know, a dumb Instagram post or something. <laughs> no, we, sa- we sound like two nerdy podcasters <laughs> who like to travel to learn things. I like, we don't travel to Bermuda. We go to coal mines. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, we are just like epitomizing ourselves. So, yeah. And I, you know what I think has been most liberating for me is just understanding that I am a huge dummy who has a lot to learn. It's probably wrong about a lot of stuff, but accepting that has made me feel freer than ever. We're all dummies. Everybody yeah. just own it. <laughs> well, it just m- means you have more blank pages in your book to fill up, more places you need to go, more books you need to read, more things you need to investigate. I don't know. I think the worldview has to do with how we think about our homes and how we think about land too, which was kind of what all three of these episodes were about. Um, How we think about what we take out of the land, like coal and how we use it and how we benefit from it, but also wreck our environment. You know, who owns the land? Kind of thinking about the Nanticoke and and that tribal piece of land that they bought back and, and who owns the stories of what happened on that land. So, you know, depending on where we live, why does it matter that our history is different or told differently? Like, why do we have to hold to that based on the piece of land that we live on? Totally. And I think some of that ownership can just be giving up claims that you thought you had on yourself or some land, you know? There was this theory by John Locke that I learned about in philosophy class, and It's this idea that no one has the right of ownership over a natural resource. And we might think, okay, yeah, sure, that sounds great and everything, but it would have grand implications on our world today. So it's this idea he called like the natural state. And it was this idea that all human beings have an equal right to use natural resources provided by the spontaneous hand of nature. Right? He basically logically explained this, like, how can you own a natural resource like a, like a spring or a coal mine or a forest and claim ownership over that when you didn't make it, you didn't find it, you weren't even given it. Nature spontaneously created it and you walked across it. And it's so unnatural for a being, an animal, aka us, to claim it when the rest of nature has more of a communal use of natural resources and the environment in which they live. Yes, a wolf has a territory, but he also knows that on that territory um, live other animals and he doesn't go through and kill every single rabbit he finds. So, there's an element we're missing there. There's a there's an element of communal living and use that gets lost in the world of big business. Today, to make things different, we're like going out and spending money and like trying to find new experiences and stuff because we're all just stuck in these little boxes that we've made. Just little apartments on top of one another, big cities on top of little cities. <laughs> Right, and everyone everyone deserves their own little box to feel safe. Um, but I I wonder if we've built too much around all of that. Like, can we bulldoze Disneyland and just take kids to a national park instead? Like, would they would they die of boredom? I don't think so. I don't think we need Magic Kingdom. I think that we could survive off of Yosemite. You're about to get in trouble. <laughs> Lots of people are gonna be mad at you. <laughs> Bring it. (laughs) Okay, so um, Abby and I are going to escape after after putting down all of this Disneyland stuff. So where where are we going, Abby? Where, where do we have to escape to? Yeah, we've got to get away before the angry parents find us. So we are headed to the cave of an early American cult in Philadelphia. 
Perfect. That's that's a great place to hide away from angry Disney parents. Yeah, a cave, a cave in the woods. Next, we'll be going to Tennessee to visit some of the last surviving red wolves, the only wolf indigenous to the United States, and they're in danger of extinction. So we learn a bit more about that. Also, will be helpful. They can become like part of our pact. You know, help keep us safe on the run. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, they'll be on our side. The last one of the season, we're headed to the Chesapeake Bay, waters off the coast of Virginia to help plant seagrasses for a blue carbon program out of the College of William and Mary. So we take to the high seas, that's how we really get away? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's our ultimate escape. We're going on a boat to the middle Can't find of nowhere. Us. We're gonna survive off seagrass. Yep. And whatever our wolves kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The wolves will be on the boat with us, so. And maybe eat these people who are on the boat with us. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that note, <laughs> we hope you hear the next episode. But if you don't, we've been eaten by rabbit wolves or Disney parents off <laughs> of the shore of Virginia in the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> now you know. The more you know. <laughs> Look for us among the seagrasses. grasses. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We'll be compost. We'll be the human compost. <laughs> we'll be we'll be aqua aquamated and composted next you hear from us. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have gone full circle and you're welcome. Thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. Caitlin Doty for her clips on human composting, TJ Henley for his thoughts on the education system, the anonymous museum goers for sharing their stories, and the Nanticoke Museum for providing a place to think, discuss, and learn. And thank you to the source material we used for research and background for this episode, theories from John Locke and ideas from Zeba Blay. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Abby Newhouse, and Melissa Wade. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, thewe'reherepodcast.com, and at our Instagram, at we'rehere.podcast, or on Twitter, at we underscore re here. Until next week, we're here.